Hello everyone! Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy! I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3. There are a lot of events happening in these three chapters. And so for this first episode, what we're going to focus on is just the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And then our second episode will take uh, the rest of those chapters, the, the elements that are covered by the different authors. And a little reminder here at the outset that the synoptic writers, this would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Remember, S-Y-N means same. Optic, what you see, your vision, it's the same view, the same, same look at something. They're all going to give us very similar accounts of the baptism of Christ. John, we covered that last week in the second episode of last week, his perspective on the baptism. Notice the amazing significance of the fact that you have the three synoptic writers who all focus pretty extensively on the baptism, and John also included it. John's usually the outlier. He's 93 to 94 percent unique in the kinds of things that he covers. So whenever there's an event in the life of Christ that gets covered by all four gospel writers, we pay attention. There aren't very many of them. The baptism, this critical beginning point, is one of those that is in all four. And like I said, we covered the the perspective from John last week, so today we're going to take the synoptic view of what happened at the baptism, keeping in mind that Matthew is trying to convince largely the Jews of his day that Jesus is the Christ, Luke writing to Theophilus, Luke the physician writing to this, this Gentile, either Gentile convert or Gentile friend of the church who hopefully is becoming a convert through the preaching of Luke. And then you get Mark. We haven't really introduced Mark yet. So this is a, a great place to, to bring up his gospel. First time we're going to in, interact with him. Mark is in other places believed to be a character that is named John Mark in the book of Acts. He, by some Christian tradition, he is the nephew of Barnabas, who on Paul's first missionary journey takes Barnabas as his companion and they take John Mark with them. And they go and John Mark forsakes the mission partway through and that makes Paul mad and we'll cover that story later in the year. The significant element for Mark's gospel is the fact that Mark seems to be Peter's personal secretary, his personal scribe. So when you're reading Mark's gospel, it's almost as if you're getting a second-hand scribal account of the life of Jesus through the lens of Peter, his chief apostle. So you get three different views, and sometimes we get really frustrated when we read the Bible because maybe Matthew gives us the order of the events of X, Y, Z, and he tells them from this angle. And then Mark comes along and he gives us X, Z, Y, and he tells it from this angle. And then Luke gives us Y, Z, X, 
and he tells it from this angle, and we say, wait, they, something's wrong, and it's all about our expectations that we bring into the text. Over the years, I've realized that the scriptures are like, like a person that you have a relationship with. And when we enter into relationship with somebody and we have expectations for that person, and if those expectations are not met, we might feel disappointed. So I've known people who bring a bunch of assumptions and expectations to the scriptures, and when the scriptures don't fulfill those expectations or assumptions, they blame the scriptures and they blame God. And I've learned over the years that like in a good relationship, we have to be much more empathetic and charitable and understand people from where they're coming from. And the more we can understand the Bible and its perspective and what it is, instead of imposing our expectations, but instead letting it be itself and understanding it on its own terms, we can then say, okay, I can deal with this, that perhaps the text is a bit more complex than I'd expected, a bit more nuanced, and I don't have to abandon the scriptures or abandon God because there's some difference or some nuance. So as a reminder, scholars have discovered that the Gospels were written in the literary style of an ancient biography. Now modern biographies today have these qualities, modern biographies. They're extensive, they're chronological, and they're exhaustive in their detail. They intend to be very particular and exacting in the details that they put together in a chronological order. Ancient biographies functioned differently. Their purpose was to be thematic and illustrative, to help paint a picture, to help people get a sense of the person of the story. So when we get into the Gospels, we sometimes might find ourselves a bit disrupted in our expectations because we might want a fully exhaustive, deep details, fully accurate in every conceivable way instead of a bit more artistry or a bit more poetry the way it was done anciently. So as you engage with the four Gospels, let's try to engage it through its approach, which is to help us to experience a bit of Jesus and his character, instead of every last detail needs some kind of historical reference point that we can verify with four other outside witnesses before we're gonna believe it. That wasn't the intention of the ancient writers. They're inviting us to come and see and to taste and to feel, and instead of having to eat the entire cake, here's a slice, you get a taste for what is, and if you come and see, you will get the full thing when you enter the presence of God. So let's pick up our baptism narrative from the synoptic perspective, looking first at John Mark, or as we refer to him as Saint Mark. Why start with Mark? Because there's a lot of evidence out there that Mark is the first to be written of these three, of the synoptic gospels. Uh, Matthew and Luke seem to be borrowing from him some of the sayings where they'll use exact statements made in the Gospel of Mark. And so his is the fastest paced, the quickest moving text. He gives you the overview of the life of Christ, focusing less on the sermons and the speeches and more on what did Jesus do. That's kind of the thematic approach that he's coming from. 
And so we're going to begin with, with the Gospel of Mark, with the baptism, in chapter 1, because that's where Mark also began. And I find this fascinating, that Mark, likely the earliest gospel, so if we're listening to the earliest witnesses about the life of Jesus, Mark begins this to teach us the identity of Jesus by beginning at the baptism. Jesus' identity, according to Mark, is best e expressed by the baptism as a starting point to understand who Jesus is. So the first words in chapter 1, verse 1 are, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's, it's a more general audience. He's just saying, look, we're going to talk about the beginning of this gospel, Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. And as it was written in the prophets, so he's going to take you to Isaiah, as did John in his gospel, uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, comes from this voice of one who's crying out there in the wilderness, not somebody who's in the center of their society, up in Jerusalem, in the courts of the Sanhedrin, or the leaders of the, the chief priests of the people. So he says, verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John isn't dressed in finery, silks and linens and eating the finest foods. Nope. He's clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And this reminds us of Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Israelite tradition, who dressed similarly, ate similarly, and lived in a similar area in, in those regions. And so for the Jews of this time, they see we have somebody like Elijah, this great prophet, who brought people to God. And so there's a clear message that God is once again doing his work on the earth and building his kingdom. And that would have meant something to those, those Jewish people there in, in his audience. Some of them would have been able to make that connection. Back to Elijah, the, the great holder of those keys. They're looking for hope. We mentioned this in a previous episode that Isaiah chapter 40 gets quoted in in the story of John as he prepares for Jesus to be baptized. And Isaiah 40 is a significant turning point in the book of Isaiah where hope is the theme. So if we think about how Mark begins his gospel, he begins his gospel by quoting the turning point of Isaiah about hope, that hope is coming and it's immediately Jesus comes on the scene and that is the hope that we've all been seeking. So, Here's John preaching out here in the wilderness, and he's telling the people, verse 8, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. This person who's coming after me, who's mightier than me, he's going to baptize you with fire. If you look at the comparison between a baptism by water versus a baptism by fire, the, the best analogy I could think of would be if you were out in a wilderness place and you had a medical doctor with you without an operating room and all of the sterile instruments and he needed to perform some emergency surgery and all you had was a pocket knife that was kind of dirty, what would you want him, this, this surgeon out there in the wilderness, to do with that dirty pocket knife? 
you'd probably want him to clean it with water first because what that water will do is it will clean all of the, the big noticeable dirt and impurities on that knife blade. But he's not ready to cut into you at this point and perform that emergency surgery. You want him to now take the knife blade and put it over top of a fire or a flame because that flame will purge all of those impurities that you can't see, the things that are, if you will, on the inside of us. So baptism is this beautiful washing, cleansing symbol for the outside, it, it, it cleans us. But the baptism by fire purifies us from, from the inside of all those impurities. And so it's this, this double baptism that's needed, not just to be put down into the water, but to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost through that confirmation ordinance. Hence, the need for us to share this message with all the world. And what do missionaries in every country that we're preaching the gospel, what is their message? It's to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, come into the waters of baptism, make that covenant connection with him, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost to prepare you for even higher ordinances to be received in the temple to more fully connect us with God. So it's a, it's a beautiful start to this story in Mark 1 of the need for both baptisms. And if we look carefully here and listen to the phrase about fire, the ancient Jews who had ears to hear would recognize this also references God. One of the great symbols from the Old Testament about God, God was often symbolized by fire. God led his people through the wilderness, a pillar of fire. And so we want God's presence in our life. And the symbol is the purifying power of fire. So here we come into the actual event. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So that's the first time that we get Jesus mentioned in, in the story flow of Mark's gospel. And all he gives you as far as his background is his town that he's coming from, which is Nazareth up in Galilee. He comes, what is it, 75, 80 miles south down the Jordan River Valley down to this place in the Judean wilderness where, where John the Baptist is performing these, these baptisms. And so it says he was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now let me pause here for a minute and point out the fact that you'll notice how quickly uh, Mark's gospel moves the story along. His is a, the fastest paced gospel by far. And consequently, he might leave out some of the details that other writers are going to put in. So you see, for instance, that we don't have the conversation between Jesus and John in the Gospel of Mark like we're going to get in the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. So as Taylor said earlier, instead of being frustrated by that, let's celebrate the fact that we're getting these, these different perspectives, different, it's a different take on the same event because they're not trying to be uh, a video recorder giving you every detail. They're trying to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams, 
and the messenger of God's covenant to us on the earth. So, as he comes out of the water, it says, the, the heavens were open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now notice this, if all you had were the Gospel of Mark, and you didn't have Matthew or Luke or John's account, all we have is the Gospel of Mark, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus' parentage, his upbringing, his boyhood, we, we wouldn't know anything about him. Our first intro would be, here's this guy named Jesus, he's from Nazareth, he comes down to John the Baptist, this kind of wild-looking man who lives out in the wilderness, and he gets baptized, and when he comes out, the Spirit descends like a dove, and there's a voice saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's all we would have, and we would say, hmm, so maybe Jesus didn't know who he was before this point. But thanks to stories in Luke's Gospel, we realize that clear back at age 12, Jesus knew who his real father was, and he was about his father's business. And Mark's account, as well as Luke's account, is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. And this is a royal psalm, meaning this is a psalm about kingship. And I'm going to read a verse before what's quoted in Mark. If you look at Psalm 2, verse 6 and 7, this is God speaking. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. So there's this unmistakable message from Mark. This is God's son. This is the king. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. So whenever you hear the phrase son of God in the New Testament, you can think to yourself, this is the king, just like it says in Psalm 2. And that is what Mark wants to focus on. So I might add one more thing here. I heard this recently from a friend, this phrase, behold my son in whom I am well pleased. And this individual said, I wonder how often we say that to our own children. What if we read this scripture and say to our own children, just like God was pleased with his children, with his son, Jesus Christ, I am pleased with you. And I invite you to consider doing that with people who matter in your life, that you be like God and say to those that you love, I am well pleased with you. Are people perfect? No, but people need to know that you see them and care for them and you are well pleased with them. That's beautiful. In fact, all of the times that we seem to hear the voice of God in Scripture, God the Father, he, whenever he's introducing his son, there's always a qualifying word every single time. And the qualifying word is beloved. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, it's, it's a powerful motivator. Love motivates better than anything, and you get that best of examples in that relationship between God the Father and his perfect son expressing that love. And uh, it's, it's a, as you said, it's a great pattern for us to follow. And very briefly, the word be loved means fully, 100%, completely loved. Be means fully or completely. 
So what a great phrase for God. And he feels that way about all of us too. Absolutely. So now we go back to Matthew chapter 3 and we're going to pick up his perspective. Now there's a lot of crossover and, and similarity with Mark's gospel and with Luke's, but Matthew has a couple of things that are, are kind of unique to him. So you get this little discussion before the baptism event between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to his baptism. You'll notice in John's gospel it was just Levites and priests who were sent down from Jerusalem uh, by the Pharisees to ask these questions of John the Baptist. Here in Matthew's gospel, speaking to the Jews, he's making it clear from his view there were both Pharisees and Sadducees who came to the baptism and John the Baptist doesn't say, oh, welcome, I'm so glad you came because he knows their intent. Their intent isn't to come and repent and be baptized, it's to, to spy and to see what he's doing and to try to stop the people from following him or, or whatever. It's not a great intent. And so he has this difficult conversation with him. He says, oh, generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So if you turn to the back of your Bible right before the Bible maps, you get these, these longer Joseph Smith translation sections. And if you go to the one for Matthew 3, labeled verse 34 through 36, I know it looks out of, out of place with the numbering because we were back in verse 7, but because Joseph has added significant amounts of, of text, the, the numbering of the verses gets shifted. So with these Pharisees and Sadducees, these chief priests, the rulers of different groups of the Jewish people of the day, John uh, says this according to Joseph, why is it that you receive not the preaching of him whom God hath sent? If you receive not this in your hearts, you receive not me. And if you receive not me, you receive not him of whom I am sent to bear record. And for your sins ye have no cloak, you have nothing to cover your nakedness, your sins. Repent, therefore, and bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. And then he adds, and think not to say within yourselves, we are the children of Abraham, and we only have power to bring seed unto our father Abraham. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. It's a, the, the clarity that Joseph Smith, the, the prophet and seer of the Lord adds is, I, I love it. He, he's adding a depth to this story where, can you picture the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing there watching all these people with that critical eye, thinking, I don't need to go down into the Jordan and be baptized by you because I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a child, a descendant of Abraham, and I can give you my genealogy pedigree chart all the way back to Abraham. I'm saved. And John is calling that into question, saying, you think you're going to be saved because of who your great, 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 great multiple generation grandfather is? God is able to raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. In fact, he's doing a word play. Uh, the word for stone is Eben, and the word for son is Ben. So he's just making it really clear. You think you are the children of Abraham, God will make any kind of children he needs from his creation. So then he, he gives them a warning in verse 10. The axe is laid unto the root of the trees, therefore every tree with, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Isn't that amazing? 
that you get this idea of everybody is going to be brought down and laid low. Either we can choose of our own free will and choice to go into that covenant relationship starting with baptism and lay down, so to speak, symbolically our will and to experience this symbolic death, burial, and newness of life, a new resurrection in Christ. Of our own free will and choice, we're laid down, or we can choose to stay up and puffed up and haughty and wait for the Lord to cut us down. Either way, we're going to be laid down. One leads to a covenant path with progression, the other leads to death and destruction. And he's, are you getting the sense that John the Baptist is not a guy who is overly concerned about um, saying things in a very tender, gentle way, not so as to not uh, upset anybody or overturn the apple cart? He's just, he's saying it like it is. Speaking with clarity. And so he, he then shifts down to verse 13, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And now you get the discussion. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Here's Jesus, and he's saying, I, I, you need to baptize me, because you're so much bigger and better than me. And I love what you get in verse 15, because keep in mind, from Matthew's perspective, this is the mortal uh, Jesus's second recorded statement. His first recorded statement was when he was 12 in the temple. Wist ye not that I be about my father's business? His second recorded statement is, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, keep it straight in your mind that this is Matthew's first statement in mortality, not John's not Mark's and not Luke's. We're, we're just looking from Matthew's perspective here. But don't you love this? John, you need to allow this to happen for us to fulfill all righteousness. Because many of you are probably still scratching your head thinking, why ultimately does Jesus need to be baptized? Why didn't he just say, you're right, and baptize John? In 2 Nephi chapter 31, Nephi picks up this, this theme, this question of why did Jesus need to be baptized? Because he had never done anything wrong. It is to fulfill all righteousness because the commandment to be baptized does not originate with Jesus. If you read 2 Nephi chapter 31, it's very clear who gave that command. And I love the way Nephi records this. Verse 11 says, And the Father said, Repent ye, repent ye, and be baptized in the name of my beloved Son. So are you seeing that this command to be baptized comes from God the Father, and now Jesus is saying to John, You've got to baptize me, to, fulfill, to allow us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it doesn't matter that Jesus has never committed any sins up to this point. It means that it is a commandment of God to be baptized. And so what is Jesus going to do? He's going to fulfill all of God's commandments, fulfill all righteousness. 
And one of those commandments is to be baptized. I need to be baptized because if he doesn't get baptized, then he's not keeping that commandment. He would no longer be perfect or qualified to perform his infinite atonement. And so Jesus was baptized and baptizo in the Greek is this fully immersed uh, sense and he came straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were open and upon, up unto him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. In the, the book, The Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 275 to 276, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, who abridges some of these, these teachings of, of the prophet Joseph, he said that he describes this on those pages that the Holy Ghost descended in the sign of a dove, not in the form or in the body of a dove, but the Holy Ghost, this spirit being descended in the sign of a dove resting upon Jesus. And then you get a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Some of you will notice a slight variation here from what we read in Mark, and Luke picks up Mark's wording from God the Father that quotes Psalm 2, thou art my Son, as if God is speaking to Jesus, thou art my Son in Mark and Luke's Gospel. But in Matthew's Gospel, the wording is slightly adjusted so that the audience of God's message is not Jesus, but it's all the people who are there, including John. And he's speaking to them saying, this is my beloved son, which matches what he says to Joseph, what he says to the Nephites in 3 Nephi 11 at the appearance of Jesus, and in other accounts, this idea of God telling everybody else, bearing testimony, of the Son. Can I suggest to you that the most powerful witness of Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament is right there in that verse? Why would it be the most powerful? Because nobody has more knowledge, power, and authority than God the Father. And when God the Father says to all these people, his voice directly says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, there's nobody who can bear a more powerful testimony that Jesus is the Christ. And now with Matthew's uh, largely Jewish audience, this is, this means something. This is, this is powerful to say, oh, I, I better pay attention. So every chapter up to this point, Matthew's been trying to convince us Jesus is the Christ. And I would suggest to you that that's the most powerful testimony in the entire New Testament coming directly from God the Father. So let's transition over to the story that Luke provides and just a couple of highlights. Remember, Luke is this Gentile who often highlights or brings into the story people who are often overlooked in other Gospels. For example, if you notice here in verse 12 and verse uh, 14 of Luke chapter 3, you have publicans and soldiers who are there in the crowd with John finding out what they should do in their lives. And you don't have those individuals showing up in Matthew and Mark. So it's fascinating that Luke provides this additional perspective of people who, you think about the publicans, these are the tax collectors. Now, are there any of you out there who really are excited about having tax collectors in your life? Or soldiers, if they're soldiers for the other side and not your side. So these are the hated individuals from society and Luke includes them in the story, say, even those 
who we seem to despise and dislike, even they are children of God, and even they are inquiring about what they should do to seek after God and his kingdom. If you look in verse 21 and 22, Luke, the physician, the doctor, is going to give you some detail that Matthew and Mark didn't, didn't focus on because it's probably not something of interest to them. He says, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. So again, in Luke, you don't get the discussion between uh, Jesus and John. That only comes in Matthew's gospel, but you do get something unique in verse 22. The Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him or like a bird. This idea of how does a bird or a dove descend and if the Holy Ghost in a bodily shape that a physician would, would be interested in, even though Luke isn't present here, likely he's getting this from other uh, eyewitnesses, he's saying that it's this slow, gentle descent upon Jesus, and then the voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased, which is a direct connection to Mark's version of the testimony with God speaking directly to Jesus. So as we conclude this episode talking about the baptism of Christ from the synoptic gospel's perspective, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, hopefully you're seeing the relevance of the lessons learned in our day today and the need to spread this message to the whole world that all, everyone, everywhere needs to repent and come unto Christ and be baptized by immersion and receive that gift of the Holy Ghost, the, the baptism by fire. That's why our missionaries are so uh, energetically preaching this gospel message, this good news is there's hope. I don't have to keep moving forward with this flawed life that I have. I can experience a spiritual rebirth and a newness of life with Jesus Christ as the one who is the father of that rebirth, who, who now adopts me to the point where hopefully each of us can hear, not just at baptism, but with the sacrament, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Ghost whispering to you, thou art my beloved daughter or my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased keep moving forward on this covenant path. That's our hope for all of us, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. So let's give an idea of, of how we're approaching this this year, because when you, when you study the life of Jesus Christ in, in many settings, people will take what is called a harmony approach where they'll take the events of the Savior's life. So they'll start with the birth, then they'll go to the baptism, and then from there to the temptations, and then to the calling of the apostles and the other disciples, and then we'll get in the sermons and the miracles and the parables, and then we do other elements, and then we get down to the final week of the Savior's life, and so what happens is, in a, in a course of study, you'll just systematically work through the life of Christ from his birth up to his death. 
So that's the harmony approach. And what you'll do here is you'll, you'll have Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, and you'll identify the verses from each of those gospels that deals with each of these. And remember, the four gospel writers were not purposely trying to make sure that their chronologies and their timeline all lined up with one another. They were trying to message who Jesus was, and we like to have a nice, clear lineage chronology of what's going on, and the gospels weren't necessarily lined up that way. So when we do harmonization, it's us as readers imposing a different structure um, onto the texts that doesn't necessarily exist within the texts. So if you, if you go to your Bible dictionary under Gospels, Harmony, what you'll see is pages and pages and pages of exactly what Taylor just described for you. It will have this chart and it will walk you through on the far left-hand column of the Gospel Harmony, you'll see those events in chronological order of following the, the Savior's life. Uh, and then you have to decide, are you going to follow Mark's chronology or Matthew's or Luke's? And depending on which gospel harmony you look at, there may be some variations be because of the variations within the gospels. So that's one approach. Another approach is to take a scriptural sequential uh, look at the life of Jesus, which would mean you study the gospel of Matthew from chapter 1 up until the week of the atoning sacrifice. And then you go to Mark, and some would study Mark first, uh, and then Matthew, and then Luke, up, and all of these you take what they have to say from their perspective and go up to the last week of Jesus' life, and then you do the same thing with the Gospel of John, and then you do a harmony approach with the final week, the last eight days, beginning with the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and culminating with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so that's, that's a sequential, according to the scripture, approach. And you'll notice they're very different, these two. This is a unique opportunity for us as a, as a collective church this, this year as we go through the New Testament, because the way the Come Follow Me manual is laid out, it gives us, a, it, it's kind of different. It's it's kind of fun, actually. Like option three. It's it's option three. It's one that isn't usually used in a, in a classroom setting, per se, because what's going to happen is you're going to get, as Taylor introduced, part two of, today we're covering Matthew chapter three, Mark chapter one, and Luke chapter three. Well, you know, you'll notice in the first half of this week, the episode part one, we covered the baptism of Jesus. So it was kind of this topical part of Jesus' life, which is the entirety of Matthew chapter 3, the first few verses, first nine verses of Mark 1, and the first handful of verses from Luke 3, about the first half. Now, as part 1 comes along, we're not going to cover anything from Matthew 3 because we've already covered all of Matthew 3, in episode one with the baptism, and now Luke 3 will we'll actually start here and cover just a couple of little elements from the second half of Luke 3 and then spend the rest of our time in Mark chapter 1 because Mark is very fast-paced and he's covering a whole bunch of details and events in the life of Jesus in his very first chapter, and here's 
here's the thing that's going to be unique or new in that you're going to now, we're going to cover the way Mark covers it, certain events in the life of Christ, and then you're going to see some of these same events in Mark chapter 1 come up in three or four additional lessons when Matthew covers them down the road uh, in future lessons, as well as Luke, and in some cases even John. So it's it's a unique approach, and we're excited to jump in. It, I think it's exciting because instead of just only doing all of Matthew and then just only doing all of Mark and then all of Luke, instead each week we'll do a portion of Matthew, then we'll move into a portion of Mark and a portion of Luke, or a portion of John, and it'll turn out that over the weeks that we're doing these lessons, we will get to re-experience stories about Jesus' life multiple times, and maybe not just all one time in one lesson. So we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and experiencing the scriptures in a verbal commentary way that allows us to see these unique testimonies unfolding as a witness of Jesus. So let's begin in Luke chapter 3. Last time we covered verse 1 through 22, which covers his, his, the baptism experience. So if you look at verse 23 through 38, and if you just kind of glance at the page, you'll notice a whole bunch of names intermixed with which was the son of. So this is Luke's way of giving the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew, speaking to Jews, he's using a more Hebrew form um, that you'll find in the Old Testament, which is so-and-so beget so-and-so. Luke seems to be using more of just a simple form, uh, speaking to Theophilus, in, and more to a Gentile audience rather than to a Hebrew audience, and it's just so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, which was the son of so-and-so. The thing that you're going to notice here is verse 23, it says, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, and then in parentheses in the KJV, as was supposed, meaning most people around him supposed that he was the son of Joseph. Now, he technically is under a, a Mosaic law, under the Judaic law. Joseph named him. He's adopted him. He is technically the son of Joseph, but in reality, biologically, he's not the son of Joseph. And so it's, it's kind of fun to see that clarification. So then from Joseph, you go to Heli, and then to Matthat, and then to Levi and Melchi, and on and on and on we go. You'll notice how long this genealogy list is, and Matthew emphasized two people in the genealogy chart. He emphasized King David and Father Abraham. Not so with, with Luke. Luke isn't as enamored with King David because he's not speaking to a Jewish audience who loves King David, and Father Abraham is the father of all the faithful. Uh, notice what Luke does with his genealogy. Yeah, we get here to verse 38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So what are some of the takeaways you see from this genealogy? And notice that actually it ends at God, whereas Matthew starts Matthew starts anciently and comes to the time of Jesus. 
Luke starts the time of Jesus, Jesus and makes his way back in time. Don't you love that fact that, that you get the two directions here? And where Matthew began with Abraham, you, you, get, you get Abraham in here in verse 34, you know, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, but then you go to Terah, or Thera in the Greek, his father, Nacor, and you just keep going back, back, back. I love that, that from Luke's perspective, speaking more to a Gentile audience, he is connecting Jesus Christ with God. Let, let me demonstrate it visually for a minute, what, what I think um, is one of the beautiful principles that comes from this. If you look at genealogy pedigree charts, here you get one line of Jesus going back generation upon generation upon generation, multiple back to Adam, who is a son of God. So you're showing this one line of a very big and very complex family tree that just keeps getting bigger going back until obviously they would all uh, come back to Adam, of course. Here's the amazing thing. That's Jesus's genealogy through Joseph up to God. If you look at your own pedigree chart and you look at your own list of ancestors and the number and the volume as it, as it goes back and keeps getting bigger and bigger, you have hundreds of ancestors. It was President Boyd K. Packer on one occasion who said, as big and as complex as your family tree may be, your spiritual genealogy chart only has two lines. It's you are a child of God. It's one line long. You have heavenly parents, we would say, that have, have given you all of this capacity, and I, I just love that. This is a beautiful concept, Tyler. It's fabulous how the things we can learn from scriptures, including like a long genealogy list that, that most of us may not think, oh, that's exactly what I want to be reading in scripture. Now, contrasting and comparing Luke and Matthew, Matthew starts at Abraham. So he's the great Jewish progenitor. And it's kind of a, an exclusive genealogy that works great for the Jews. Luke, on the other hand, takes us all the way to Adam and to God, who are the fathers of all. That's a really good reminder to, to keep in mind the difference between the Gentile perspective and the Jewish perspective. Now, let's turn back to Mark chapter 1, and we're, we're going to pick up the, the second part of Mark chapter 1 after he has talked about the baptism of Christ. And that will begin in verse 12. So, again, we've told you, Mark is the fastest paced, the fastest moving of the Gospels. He's, he, he doesn't uh, spend a, a ton of time focusing on what Jesus has said. You, you get plenty of sayings of Jesus in here, but he seems to be more focused on what is Jesus doing. And in fact, the very first thing we have from Jesus saying in the Gospel of Mark is this important phrase in verse 15, jumping slightly ahead. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent ye and believe the gospel. That's beautiful because last time you'll, you'll remember we talked about his first and second recorded statements in the Gospel of Mark or Matthew. And we've seen the first recorded statements in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And now you get to see Mark's perspective. And if you, this is showing how, how fun scripture study can become if you just will take some time to read them a little more carefully. And this is one lens to say, huh. I wonder, I wonder what the first and second and, and earliest statements from the mortal Messiah are in each of these Gospels. Yeah, it's like it teaches us the purpose and mission of Jesus and with such clarity that sometimes we can get overwhelmed with pages and pages of verses. You could summarize the purpose of Jesus in just a few core statements of his first recorded statements that found, are found across the Gospels. Love it. So let's jump back into verse 12. Uh, right after the baptism from Mark's account, he says, and immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Joseph Smith in the footnote there says, and immediately the spirit took him into the wilderness. By the way, don't you like the Joseph Smith translation better than the way it comes out in the King James English? There, there's a it's it's not a wonderful image to picture the spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness. It, it feels forceful. It it feels weird. And I I love oh how I love the prophet Joseph. Um, not just for all of the restoration events and the keys and the authority and the church that restored, but because of the amazing scripture that we've received from heaven through that man. I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. And in this case, the Spirit took him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, Satan seek, seeking to tempt him, and was with him in the wilderness. So, it's, it's a subtle change, and you're going to see a much bigger version of the temptation experience out in the wilderness next week, when we cover Matthew 4 and Luke 4. So we're going to cover this again, which is the new, kind of the new approach to studying the life of Christ this, this year, and I'm looking forward to it. So all you get are two verses in, in Mark 1, whereas in Matthew and Luke, you're going to get extensive uh, descriptions. So notice the outcome. He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. If all you had was the Gospel of Mark, you wouldn't know how many temptations he was faced with, what they were, and what Jesus did to overcome them. You wouldn't know, because you just get to, you just know he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and every time you see the number 40 in ancient scripture, just recognize it may not always be an exact, literal 40 days on the calendar. The number 40 signifies to people in antiquity uh, a long passage of time. It's a, it's a, it's a big number. So you're going, to see, you're going to see 40 show up all over the place, 40 years, 40 days in the Old Testament and even in the life of Christ. And in the Book of Mormon. And in the Book of Mormon. So it means he's up in the wilderness and for 40 days. Oh, and as another difference here you don't see any fasting mentioned, like you're going to get in the other Gospels. But we'll cover that next week. 
So now, verse 14, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, and that's where Taylor pointed out his first recorded statement from, from Mark is, the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. I wonder if that message would be any different today. I would suppose that he would say the exact same thing to us today. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel, which Taylor already mentioned. That's, that, that is the message that our miss missionaries are sharing across the world. And it's a beautiful message of urgency. It's not a, oh, someday. It's no, it's time. Let's go. Let's move forward. And, and Mark does move forward. In fact, he moves so quickly through the story, sometimes we would like to linger on some really interesting things, like he's about to call these disciples, and I'm sure we would love to know more details. It seems that Mark is trying to press the narrative forward to get to what he thinks is the most consequential events to reveal who Jesus is, which is the last week of his life and, the, and his death and resurrection. So we will see here that he just moves quickly. For example, verse 16, now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And so just very quickly, suddenly he gets disciples. And you might think like, why are these people following him? That's weird. He just walked up to them. And there's got to be a lot of backstory that we're missing that they somehow know something about who he is, whether they've had interactions or the spirits told them. We don't know, which allows for lots of interesting interpretations if you're just looking at Mark. We get a little more detail on the other. Yeah, passages. so we're, we're going to spend significant time with that particular story when we get to Luke chapter 5 next week, in the second episode of next week. The calling of Peter, James, John, and Andrew, these four, the two sets of brothers who are fishers on, on the Sea of Galilee, because Luke is going to flesh that story out for us. So here, Mark's got this sense of urgency. We're moving. Jesus is, he's got places to go, people to see, things to do, and you don't, you don't get a lot of downtime in Mark's gospel. So we go straight from there, and you'll, you'll even notice the wording that he uses. Look at verse 21. They went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath. That, that word straightway, it, it gives that, that quick moving narrative feeling to it, to this whole gospel. He also uses the word immediately. Immediately. Now, we're going to pause for just a minute. I want to tie this into the Book of Mormon. The phrase, and it came to pass, is the literary signal that you're moving the narrative forward. You're not just stopping and dwelling for a long time on any one scene. You're trying to move the story forward. And this is Mark's approach. He says straightway and immediately. He's not saying, and it came to pass again and again. So you see the phrase, and it came to pass in the Book of Mormon. Just know that the, the narrator is trying to move the story and get you into the next scene right away. And what is that next scene? It's the Sabbath day. And where does Jesus go on the Sabbath day? I like this. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I don't need, I don't need to go to the synagogue. I don't need to associate with people. I'm going to go out into the wilderness on the Sabbath day and commune with God every single Sabbath day. 
where does he go? He went, he entered into the synagogue and he taught. I like that. It's that approach of the reason we go to church shouldn't always be just for us. It should be to go to see how we can bless other people as well. Jesus shows us this beautiful example here. He, he taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Now, that's, that's a loaded statement there because Jesus is proclaiming his gospel with authority and with power and telling people what to do and how to do it, not as the scribes who are constantly in what are called uh, halachic debates, where they're debating the fine points of the law. Kind of like um, a backroom elders quorum conversation that breaks out where we like to debate things that probably don't have a lot of significance. Yeah. And so he's, he's cutting to the most important elements of the gospel. And in the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know, know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, I have a simple question for you to consider for a moment. Why didn't Jesus turn to everybody in the synagogue that day and say, Shh, everybody, quiet down and listen up. Hey, say that again. This man possessed with a devil, even the devils know who I am. Say that again. Why didn't he do that? There's a really good reason. You never, ever, ever tune your ear to devils. Why? In this case, you would say, but, but why not? The, the devil is telling the truth here. You're right. Devils are capable of telling the truth. But it doesn't mean they're truthful people. It doesn't mean that they're, they're beings of truth. The only reason they would ever tell you a truth is to get you to trust them so that you'll believe the deception and the lie that is shortly to come. They will never always tell you the truth. They'll only tell the truth as much as it's necessary to get your trust. So notice how Jesus responds to this man. Look at verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. You'll notice the devil, he didn't lie right there. The, this man possessed, he, he told the truth, but Jesus told him to hold his peace and come out of the man. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. I love that. There's never a time in the New Testament where Jesus interacts with an evil spirit and the evil spirit says, no, I don't want to come out of him. I'm going to stay. When Jesus commands, they always have to, to respond. But you'll notice in scripture there are plenty, plenty of cases where human beings try to do the same thing and the devils don't respond. They stay in the, in the person. Even, even prophets like uh, Moses trying to cast out Satan three times in Moses chapter 1, and he can't do it until he calls upon the name of the only begotten to cast out Satan. Brothers and sisters, there is a power in the name of Jesus Christ to drive back temptation, to drive back the forces of evil and darkness in our life. And 
we, we could benefit collectively and probably individually from uh, invoking the name of Jesus Christ and asking him to help in moments of temptation and faced with, with evil. Uh, as you see played out multiple times, the devils have nothing, n nothing to, to negotiate. They have to depart when Jesus is involved. So Jesus even asks us to use his name or more appropriately to think on his name more often. We promise every week at sacrament to always remember his name, to take it upon us. I take a couple of additional lessons from this. One, that Jesus is the master of the universe. He has total control. He is the one who has the authority. I also find it interesting, I look at my own life and I think, if the devils obey Jesus, and I don't, do I? <laughs> like, if the ones who are actually rebellious against Jesus and still f have to do what he says, am I also willing to be obedient and humble and receive commands and respond to Jesus? So it just, it makes me be a little introspective. I have never thought about that before. That is such an amazing juxtaposition of of the devils down in hell, they don't have a choice. They don't have agency. When Jesus commands something, they, they have to do it. And yet you and I, we have agency. We have a degree of freedom to choose. So he'll give us commands, but he doesn't force us. We actually have a choice because we kept our first estate up in heaven. Oh, let us not mess up our, our second estate and choose to reject his voice as those devils did in their first estate. That's, that's a beautiful comparison. I've never noticed that before. So immediately Jesus's fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And so verse 29 tells us, forthwith when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew because Simon and Andrew are brothers, with James and John. James and John are brothers, and these two families seem to be in a fishing business together with their fathers, Zebedee and Jonas. And we think we know where this is. We don't have exact confirmation, but we know where the city of Capernaum is, the town. There was a church that was built within one of the large houses in this community, and so archaeologists think this must have been Peter's home, because people's memories would have known this is where Jesus stayed. And if you take a look at these pictures we put here, here's the home where Jesus likely would have stayed with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law and, and others, really just, what, 20 yards, Tyler? You get the Sea of Galilee. On one side and on the other side is just literally a 30-second walk to get into the synagogue. So it's a very tight-knit, very small community, and yet Peter must have been some man of means within this community, which itself was probably not super prosperous on today's standards, but Simon sees to be somebody who has had blessings in his life of hard work and seen the results of a lot of labor. So here we are in, in that home, wherever it was, if it's the traditional one or one near it, it, it couldn't be far from that in, in Capernaum. And it says in verse 30, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. 
So this is Peter's mother-in-law. They're in the home, and Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. Instantly after healing her, she, she now goes about serving. You're going to get this story again when we cover the miracles of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He's going to, going to talk about it and give us some additional details later on. And then it tells you that he now, in verse 32, heals all kinds of people that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. He's, you're seeing Mark's speed of working his way through a whole series of Jesus's initial miracles, which lead to some, some serious popularity in the region of Galilee. And people are bringing their sick folk to him because they're saying, hey, there's somebody who can actually heal you. I, I wonder if you and I feel that same sense of urgency today in the 21st century to bring people around us to Christ because he can heal them and different ways to, to invite them and encourage them and persuade them and at times carry them to Christ because it doesn't matter whether it's a physical, a mental, emotional, spiritual, or even this demoniac struggle that some are facing, Jesus had the power to heal them. Let's tie this into the first recorded statement from the lips of Jesus that Mark provides. Back in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. One of the ways that we should be looking at these miracle stories is as an expression that God's kingdom is here. Now, if you want to map out or lay out a bullet points of what would God's kingdom look like, peace, harmony, joy, healing, people are whole and complete. And so Jesus is one by one inviting people into the kingdom of God by healing their souls, their bodies, their spirits, their minds, their emotions, as an expression that this is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, there might be some of you who have prayed for, in faith, for a miracle for you or for a loved one for years or, or maybe even for decades, and perhaps it hasn't been granted to you, and so you feel as if, well, these stories aren't really applicable to me. Can I just say that sometimes the, the real test of mortality is to see some people around us and in history and in scriptures get healed or get these miracles and we don't. And sometimes you may feel like you're more deserving of those than others who get them. But the reason we came to this earth was to be tested and to have our faith tried and proven in all things. And maybe some people get these miracles and you don't or your family doesn't, but it doesn't mean that you're cut off from the spiritual miracles and the spiritual connections with heaven that can deepen through that process of pleading and asking and uh, fasting for and desiring these miracles. That through that process, it can help connect you with heaven more fully over time than if the first time you knelt down and prayed for the miracle, 
you got it, it cuts off that pleading and that fasting and that searching and striving. So I would say don't feel like you're being punished by God if you don't get the miracle. It's an opportunity for us to more fully trust in God that he knows what he's doing with all of us and he knows when is the ideal time to give certain miracles and he knows when the ideal time is to withhold miracles and some of them withheld for this entire lifetime with the promise that in the end he will wipe away every tear from every eye regardless of what caused those tears. So 36 through 38 is this, this little interim where Simon comes to him, and when they'd found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. Everybody's trying to find thee. Why? Why couldn't they find him on that particular day? Because if you look at verse 35, it says, In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. It's one of those little interlude sections in, in the scriptures that gives you this idea that Jesus' entire ministry wasn't just filled from dawn to dusk with going around busily serving and healing and teaching and, and being with the people. Jesus took time to get away and connect with heaven and to commune with God. The amazing thing about scripture study is you don't need people to preach to you and tell you what to do and how to do it and when to do it. For me, the power of, of learning in the scriptures and to, to teach and to be a student as we, as we all work our way through the scriptures together is to find principles of the gospel, truths that can apply to us and then go to heaven. And as we make a serious study of the scriptures, ask the Lord, how could I apply that in my life? And it's going to look different for you than it does for me, than it does for Taylor and, and everybody else. But it's this idea of find time to, to spend some quality uh, prayer opportunities to commune with God every single day. President Nelson has invited us to do that, and other apostles have, have said that as well. Such a powerful principle coming out of this page. So his disciples find him and they continue the preaching circuit. They go to synagogues, they're healing people, and we come to this really beautiful story that sometimes gets a little overlooked. Verse 40, there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleaned. So if we take that story and, and pause for a minute, you'll notice what happens when you read scripture as, as Mark wrote it, you're, you're getting this, this quickly moving progression of the events. So you get a leper, he comes to Jesus, he kneels down, he makes a request, Jesus responds in this case, touches him, heals him immediately, and then after he's going to tell him, go and don't tell anybody this, go to the, the priest, and, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. 
But if you'll pause and look at some of the critical points in these stories, then you can start to identify some principles, some truths, that you might be able to apply in your life. Because chances are, most of you watching this probably aren't suffering from leprosy. And even if you did have leprosy, Jesus isn't walking the streets of your village today, physically, to go and, and apply the story directly. So we need to find the principles, because those are the things that can be applied to, uh, to us. So, in a first century Jewish context, what would you do if you're a good practicing Jew, and you're with Jesus in this crowd, and all of a sudden here comes a leper right in front of Jesus and bows down, kneels down on the ground in front of you? What, what would any self-respecting Jewish citizen of that day do? Well, you'd act like security, and you'd want to protect Jesus so that you would not become ritually impure according to the law of Moses, and thus have temple privileges removed from you for a while. And you would actually say, let's make way, let's move away from this person. It's actually even worse than that. The lepers were shunned from society. They were outside society. They did not have access to regular human social experiences or even human touch. Yeah, you, you don't touch them. If, if you woke up one morning and you had a, a white sore on one of your fingertips or a tip of a toe or a nose or an ear, because that's usually where, where leprosy would settle in, and if somebody saw that and said, unclean, and if you go to the priest and he, he designates you as a leper unclean, that's a death sentence, culturally. You don't get to go and, and hug your family goodbye and go to work and collect all of your belongings and go to the synagogue, one more ward party before I depart out to the leper colony. You're cast out. You're, you're driven out of society. And you're cut off from all the people and all of the things that you, you loved. Now, here's one of them who has come back into their society, and he kneels down, and look closely at his words here. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, which tells this same story, and we'll, we'll be in Matthew 8 in a, in a few weeks, the man adds one word. He says, Lord, if thou wilt. Now, do you notice the significance of that phrase, Lord? If thou wilt. It's this meek, humble. He's kneeling down. He's worshiping the Lord. And he's basically saying, if you want this to happen, the implication is, even though it doesn't say this on the page, for me, it communicates a spirit of this man saying to Jesus, if there's any possible way for you to heal me, I would love it. But if not, to use that principle from the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, but if not, I'm still going to love you. I'm still gonna, going to worship you. I'm, I'm still going to have faith in you. To the point where if Jesus had said to this man, actually, it's not my will to heal you today. There is a divine purpose for you to retain this leprosy for more years or even until till your death. And at that point, based on that phrase, I can picture our lepers saying, thank you. 
thank you, Lord, for considering my condition and I've put my life in your hands and I trust you. I had faith to be healed, but the timing apparently or the the will of the Lord wasn't lined up here. And so I'm going to trust you. That's how I picture this man responding based on the meekness. Oh, I want to be more like this leper. I want to be able to go to the Lord and not make demands and say, I will only love you and I will only continue to stay faithful. I'll only, I'll only keep going to church if you give me blessings X, Y, and Z because I deserve them. I want to be the kind of person like this leper who can go to the Lord and say, I would really appreciate having blessing X, Y, and Z if it be according to thy will. But if it's not according to thy will, I don't want those blessings because I want what thou wants more than what I want. And then trust him that whatever comes as you work through that process is going to be his will. So that's phase one. The meek, humble, pleading, submissive uh, startup rather than going in demanding. Phase two is when he says, thou canst make me clean. Now, notice this. If we're making a movie and I'm your actor, I'm your leper, and I've got my script and I come to the set, the movie set that day, and I'm, I'm on the ground, picture me on the ground pleading, Lord, if thou wilt, and then I say, thou canst make me clean. If you were my director, what would you say to me? Would you say, oh, perfect, or would you say, uh, no, we need, we need some human emotion in here. Notice the difference between just reading robotically five words, thou canst make me clean. Watch what happens when you put human emphasis on a word. Picture a leper saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. That carries with it a certain feeling, a certain sentiment, a certain level of faith. Watch what happens if you shift what word gets emphasized. Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. You're capable. You can do this. That's a different feeling. What about if we emphasize this word, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I know you're a savior for everybody, but in that moment, you're my savior. You can actually make me clean. And finally, let's let just let's do one more. What if we emphasize this last word, Lord? If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Here's a man who had a death sentence with that leprosy, and he's on the ground in front of Jesus pleading for a miracle. And I love the fact that in the scriptures, we're not told which word he emphasized. We don't know. We don't know how he said this in the Aramaic, because this is a translation from the Aramaic to the Greek when it's written down, and now to the English. 
We don't know what the actual words were and how he emphasized them, but the scriptures are given to us as a gift of God to make them our story because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that man on the ground, that leper, it's me. That's me. It's you. This is our story and it's our turn to come unto Christ and plead for miracles humbly, meekly, submissive, patient, willing to submit to all things, whatever he wants to, to inflict upon us, and you get to decide which word or combination of words you emphasize on any given occasion, and I love that. I love that freedom that the scriptures give us to own it and without forcing us into this is exactly how he said it and this is exactly the order and the emphasis that he gave. Isn't it exhilarating to get into the scriptures and dwell on them for a bit? Sometimes we feel like I got to read my scriptures and we do. We read scriptures, but don't dwell on them and let them impact our lives. I hope we could spend just another moment looking at something else in this story that touches my heart really deeply when I look at this. It says, Verse 41, Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him. Now let's think again. We don't know how long this leper had his situation. Let's just call it 10 years. Can you imagine 10 years of never being touched by another human? In some ways, I like to believe, this is my own personal opinion, that that was the healing moment where this leper was once again experiencing the joy of human touch. I remember some years ago, I was at a family reunion and my sister-in-law, Anna Rampton Fowler, was sharing some research. We, every night, a different family member would share some insight or some cool research that they learned about with the group. And she talked about what researchers have learned about the power of human touch and what it does for us emotionally and socially, including, she mentioned specifically, eight-second hugs have long-term, lasting, positive impact on people's lives. Eight-second hugs, it doesn't take a lot of time. And I think about this man who had none of that for who knows how many years. So in all the healing that we love to see in the scriptures, that we hope for in our lives, Maybe one of the things is we ask ourselves, am I appropriately sharing human touch with others who need it? Now I say appropriate, right? Everybody has a different culture about how much they wanna to be touched by one another. But in appropriate circumstances, you might look at people in your life who might need a loving hand or a hug that helps them to feel that God is with them and loves them. And this is such a small, fast story. Put forth his hand and touched him. Among all the scriptures, it's just this little phrase. And it, to me, it matters so much, this leper who hadn't been touched in years. So, so to take that one step further, if you're in the group of, of the, the disciples of Christ with him that day, and this man has said what he said, and Jesus says, I will, and Jesus starts reaching for him, I can picture some of the people standing there <gasps> catching, no, don't, don't touch him. And the amazing thing to me is Jesus has the capacity to heal this guy 
by just saying the words, be thou healed. He, he does this with other people. He doesn't even need to say the words. He could just think them and the guy will be healed. That's his power. But there's something powerful about that human touch. And, and as Taylor's described this, and you can picture the people's reaction of him reaching out and touching this unclean leper, which is technically going to make Jesus ceremonially unclean. Have you noticed the pattern? Jesus is not afraid of touching that which is unclean and that which is technically unworthy. If that thing or that person is willing to come unto Christ, in fact, Jesus specializes in touching that which feels unworthy and unclean and cleansing it and making it pure. That's his whole mission. Are you noticing that every teaching and every miracle and every parable that we're going to study this, this year are simply little object lessons, little, little elements that reflect his ultimate miracle, which is the gift of his infinite atonement to heal all of us of our eternal uncleanliness and our eternal death and hell, uh, death sentences, and to restore us and bring us back into full fellowship. I, I love this story of this leper, and we don't even know his name. He's one of my heroes. Someday in the next life, I can't wait to meet him and give him a good long hug and thank him for showing me and you a pattern of how to appropriately seek for and have faith in Jesus in giving us miracles. So in closing, we would remind you of something that President Russell M. Nelson shared uh, last year. It's to seek for and expect miracles in your life. And here you have a pretty good pattern shown us that you can apply in a variety of ways in your own life. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.